Father, we thank you for your great faithfulness, for your unfailing love, for your promises, each and every one that we know you will keep, and for all those that you already have. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and his death and resurrection brings us life. And we thank you for your word. And Lord, while we've made it through six books and we've got 60 more to go, I just thank you that it's all your word. We're told in 2 Timothy that all of the word of God is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. All of it is useful for us, for reproof and instruction. And so God, I pray that you would teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, by way of introduction, the author of the book of Judges is believed to be the prophet and last of the, judge, of the judges, Samuel. That's who they believe wrote the book of Judges. We know he wrote the books that bear his name, um, but it is believed that he also wrote this book. Uh, date, the book of Judges covers a time period from somewhere around 1350 B.C. to around 1050 B.C. Uh, the writing of the book is believed to have taken place, of course, uh, somewhere around or after that 1050 B.C. mark. This time period is not exact. I, I've heard people say that Judges uh, lasts upward of 400 years as opposed to 300 years. Um, we're not given dates in the book, so the best we can do is guess. Um, but give or take from the end of the conquering uh, and Joshua's death, that would have been somewhere around 1350 B.C. We know the kings came around during the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, so we don't have the exact time frame, but it's something like that. And it covers the time that goes between the death of Joshua, which we will review again in chapter 1, and the kings uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. The theme of the book. Essentially, God wanted Israel to be a theocracy. Right? We have democracy, a government by the people. We have a republic, which is a representative government. Um, a dictatorship, where you, you, know, you have somebody in charge who does whatever they want. Um, kings, a monarchy. Um, various forms of government. God wanted Israel to be a theocracy where they had no formal human government, but God was their king. Unfortunately, the people wanted a king, which we will see when we get to the books that bear Samuel's name. And if you uh, remember, uh, when this happened and they demanded a king, God told Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. So they wanted to rebel against God, and they forgot his commands. And as a result, we get the book of Judges. It shows us the failures of the people of Israel, along with the faithfulness of God, to raise up the judges and deliver them when the people would call out to him. So as there is this repeated cycle of spiritual revival and falling away. And we will, we will see that over and over again. During the period of time covered in the book of Judges, Israel was served by a series of 15 judges. 
Some of these judges did pretty well. Deborah, Gideon, and a few others. It's really interesting. We'll probably talk about this a little more when we get to Deborah. There have been other um, key female players, for lack of a better word, in the Bible thus far. Uh, Miriam, uh, you know, we get, we get a good clip about Zipporah, Moses' wife, uh, Sarah, uh, Rachel, Leah, um, and a few others. Deborah is the first one that, for lack of a better term, just kind of goes out and kicks some rear end, right? She opened a can of whoop something. We're in church. We can't say that. Um, but, but she was the one, and, and I love it because when she's dealing with Barack, Barack says, well, well, you know, I'm supposed to go do this. And she goes, okay. She was a prophetess. And he says, well, you need to come with me. And she goes, fine. But then everyone's going to know that the victory came at the hand of a woman. <laughs> and I just, Brock's like, that's fine. But he was so scared, he wanted Deborah to go with him. So I, I, like, I like Deborah. We're going we're gonna to get to Deborah. Gideon and anyways, a few others, they did, they did a good job. You know, after everything that happened with Gideon, they tried to make him king. And he's like, uh-uh, oh, I'm not your king. I, I did what God told me to do. Back off. I'm not your king. Um, some of the judges were used by God, but were still pretty wicked. You have guys like Abimelech, who kills all of his brothers in an attempt to make himself king, right? I think we can kind of throw out there that killing your brothers is, is not a nice thing to do. Um, you have Samson, right? We always talk about Samson and his strength, but think about Samson. Uh, he was selfish. He was prideful. He repeatedly committed sexual sin. We'll see a little bit of everything in the book of Judges. Now, there's a key verse in the book of Judges that doesn't really show up until chapter 21, verse 5. That key verse is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, people like to say, oh, well, you know, the Bible doesn't speak to modern times. Right here, in the book of Judges, they talk about moral relativism, which is a huge thing in our society. Moral relativism. There is no right and wrong. There is no absolute truth. That's one of my favorite sentences in the English language. There is no absolute truth. Well, is that statement true? Well, of course it is. Then that statement, you know, the, the argument would be, well, of course it is. Well, if there is no absolute truth, and that statement is absolutely true, then it contradicts itself. But I've heard people, there is no absolute truth. Truth is subjective. Moral relativism and, and this, this idea that you can't actually determine what is right or wrong. You can't actually determine what is moral. We actually make, uh, in, in apologetic circles, we make what is called the moral argument for the existence of God. And the moral argument includes the goodness of God. Why do we believe murder is wrong? Well, if there is no truth, and truth is subjective, then murder would only be wrong for 
certain people, or it would actually never be wrong if I had a good reason to justify committing murder. But we all agree, every civilization throughout the history of the world has punished people for committing murder. Right? Well, why? Why do we know that's wrong? Why is lying wrong? Right? Oh, well, you know, lying is not really wrong. It depends on the situation. But if somebody lies to you, say in a business deal, well, you can sue them. And if you can prove they lied, then you can win the money or, you know, or, or whatever it is you're going after. Right? Our, our laws recognize that there is a standard of morality. Now, it keeps order, right? Without, without a moral standard, there is chaos. Like, yeah, like, like a lot of places. And so the moral argument goes, well, if we're the moral standard, then the moral standard can change based on our emotions, which means there has to be a moral standard that is outside of humanity. And that moral standard has to be good, had to be given to us. And so, of course, that moral standard is God. Yeah, the Ten Commandments and a lot of other things throughout Scripture. So we call that the moral argument for God. Well, right here in Judges 21, verse 5, that was a very pared-down version of the moral argument for God. There's a lot more to it. Uh, but in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They practiced a type of social moral relativism in Israel at this time. They had a moral standard. They chose to ignore it and chose to make up their own morality, which, look at our world today. You guys brought up a couple examples, Seattle, San Francisco, various places in the world. Um, when human beings make up their own morality, things go bad. And that's what's going to happen throughout the book of Judges, <laughs> quite repeatedly. I want you to keep in mind, and we talked about this at the beginning of Joshua, that we are moving through a section of scripture which we refer to as historical narrative. It often shows us the wrong things that biblical figures did or the right things that biblical figures did. This was, of course, not to teach us how to sin, but so we can learn from their example, good or bad. When interpreting narrative texts, we often ask questions about what happened, who it happened to, why it happened, i.e., was it a consequence of obedience, a consequence of disobedience, a command of God, so on and so forth. Uh, we ask about where it happened, what's the point, is there an example to follow, a sin or error to avoid, a promise to claim or a command to obey. These are the types of things that should be going through our minds as we read and interpret narrative texts in the Bible. With all that being said, let's dive into the book of Judges. Um, chapter 1. Now I'm going to read all of chapter 1 in, in its wholeness, and then we're going to kind of pop through it and, and point out a few important things. Uh, but chapter 1 is actually kind of a review that connects Judges to the book of Joshua. I'm going to take a sip of water first. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, 
that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites, Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. Go figure, the Lord of Bezek was in Bezek. And fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowlands. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjith Arba. And they killed Shishai, Ahimon, and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjith Sefer. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjith Sefer... And takes it to him, I will give my daughter Achish's wife, or sorry, Achish, Aksa, his wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, his wife. Now it happened when she came to him that, he ur that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and lower springs. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Ormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. Oh, poor Western, right? Western states, who is it for the mountaineers? Okay, sorry. Um, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said, then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. I said if we were going to read the whole chapter, I thought there were only 26 verses. I'm slow. So we get a revisiting of conquests of part of the land. Um, when it said that they inquired of the Lord of who, as, who, as to who should go up first and Judah was chosen, it's likely they used the Urim and Thummim that's spoken about in Scripture, the... the um, we, we don't exactly know what it is. It's believed that they were a black and white stone that were held in the belt of the high priest's outfit. And they would ask the Lord a yes or no question. So they might have said, you know, should Benjamin go up first? And they pulled out the black stone. No, okay. Should Dan go up first? Pulled out the black stone. Well, eventually they get to Judah. They pull out the white stone. Oh, yep, it's Judah. 
and that God would use that. Um, somewhere in the book of Proverbs, I should have put this down, it says the lot is cast, cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Um, which, which, you know, really makes me think that the game of Yahtzee should be a game of prayer. Uh, it was decided that Judah would go up first, but notice what Judah did. Hey, Simeon, you want to go with us? To me... To do that, you need to... Oh, that's funny. I thought I said something else. Wow. To do that, you need to turn Stop off... Stop it. That's hilarious. I said Simeon, and my iPad thought it said something else. Technology. So helpful. Um, but they asked Simeon to go up with them, and personally, I think this is a lack of trusting God. God said, I will go with you. I will fight for you. I will deliver the inhabitants into your hand. And Judah said, woohoo, hey, Simeon, you want to help? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with asking help from other people. But I think there are times we ask help from other people where we seek to do something ourselves instead of trusting God to help us and deliver us and give us the victory. Um, you have, they, they take care of Bezek and Adonai Bezek, um, Adonai Bezek, of course, means Lord of Bezek. They cut off his thumbs, which meant that he could not use a bow or a sword. Would, you could, I mean, and I was thinking about that, right? You could draw a bow, but the bow rests against that, that crevice there between your thumb and your pointer finger. So without that, you would be very difficult to draw a bow. Same with the sword. How do you grip a sword without your thumbs? Um, cutting off the big toes, right? You need your big toes for balance. It would have made running very difficult. He acknowledges that he had done this to 70 other kings and that God had, repay him, had repaid him. Uh, this, of course, brings up the principle that we see throughout Scripture, which is the principle of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit of the spirit, you reap everlasting life. So Judah goes after Jerusalem, sets it on fire, but doesn't actually get rid of the inhabitants. Uh, remember we talked about that, that it didn't happen until the time of David that the Jebusites were finally defeated and driven out of Jerusalem. Uh, last week I mentioned that delayed obedience is disobedience. This week I will remind you that partial obedience is disobedience as well. In verse 12 through 15, we are reminded of Caleb conquering the land that was given to him and how he gives his daughter away for a specific city. This was essentially a dowry for his daughter. Uh, remember, women had very few rights in these times, including divorce. So the dowry came around as alimony in advance. So taking the city was Othniel's dowry, along with the springs that the daughter asked for. I think it's interesting that she was the one who asked. Um, I was listening to Pastor Chuck talk about this, and he said, well, I'm much more likely to give something to my daughter than my son-in-law. <laughs> so that may be why uh, Oxa was the one to ask, because if Othniel came up, he'd be like, well, I ain't giving you nothing. Verse 16 mentions the Kenites. They were the brothers-in-law of Moses. Uh, these were the sons of Jethro. And they weren't going to go with the people of Israel. Uh, back in, um, I can't remember if it's Exodus or Numbers, 
they asked them, Moses asked them, you, you guys want to come with us? And they're like, now nah, we're going home. But apparently at least a couple of them went. We don't know how many sons Jethro had. Uh, and they set out from the city of Palms, which was Jericho. Now verse 17 through 26, we have further conquest and failure. They didn't drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And this has nothing to do with their military power and everything to do with them not trusting God. We have the sons of Anak. These were the giants, right? They killed the giants when they first were meant to go into the land way back in the book of Exodus. Well, we can't go into the land. There are giants. They're here. They're killing the giants. But they're not getting rid of everyone else. And I, I kind of drew an application from that. Well, not kind of. I drew an application from that. That we sometimes think that because we are not committing any great sin, right? Well, I'm not murdering anybody. I'm, I'm not committing adultery, i.e. the giants, right? You, you, you feeling my metaphor? That we're okay. And we don't deal with or let God work in us to deal with the little things that are still holding us back from all that God has for us. In 1 John 3, 4 through 6, it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And what's so important about this passage is it's a talking about not if you make a mistake, not if you, you do something dumb or you're disobedient. This is a practice of sin. And a person who practices sin, well, does that person, is that person really following the Lord? It says Benjamin fails to drive out the Jebusites, which we, we already know. Uh, and then Joseph's kids bribe a man with his life and family to help them take Bethel, and it works. And so then he takes his family and goes off. It was formerly Luz. Now it's Bethel. He goes off, builds another city, and calls it Luz. <laughs> and... Remember, they weren't supposed to make any deals or covenants with the people of the land. Well, that kind of sounds like a deal to me. Now, what's interesting about this is the entrance that they wanted to find was probably a secret entrance that was used to get water during time of military siege. This was common in those days. Hezekiah, uh, with the coming of the Assyrian siege, or the anticipation of the Assyrian siege, built a tunnel in Jerusalem for the pool of Siloam. Uh, we, will, we will get to that, of course, later on. What's cool about it, and I highly encourage you, I, I could have found a picture, but you, you can Google it yourself. But if you Google Hezekiah's tunnel, you can walk through it to this day. They, they unearthed it, archaeologists unearthed it. Um, and, and it's big enough that you could walk through, but they dug this tunnel so that they could get water into the city during a time of siege. So that leads us to verse 27 through 36, which is really a sad nine verses. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, so on and so forth. And it came to pass in verse 28 that when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute but they did not completely drive them out. Were they supposed to put them under tribute? No. 
They were supposed to kill them. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So they're still there. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahol. Nahalol. Yeah, there you go. So they're still dwelling under him, but they were put under tribute. Were they supposed to put them under tribute? No. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko. And there's some other place, so they still dwell among the Canaanites. Nor did, verse 33, Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or a bunch of others, so the Canaanites still dwell with them, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anoth were put under tribute. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, right? So it's not just that the Danites didn't manage to drive them out. The Canaanites actually drove them back, for they would not allow them to come down into the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Eris, in Aijalon, and in Shaalbim. Yet with the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. What a sad nine verses. What was God's promise? Go into the land. Every place the sole of your foot touches, I will give you. Make no covenants with the people of the land. Wipe them out. All of them. Nor did, nor did, nor did, nor did, nor did. They did not obey the command of the Lord. Oh, they put them under tribute, but that's not what they were supposed to do. Partial obedience is disobedience. And this, of course, became a huge problem for them that we are going to see in the next couple chapters. What we see here is that they did not possess all that God promised us, promised them. For us, this is very much like our battle between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5.17 says, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, God has given us victory over the flesh. And we're told in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In order to walk in the victory that is ours, we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. We cannot do this apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and the instruction and guidance of the word of God. I like that phrase that we should make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I know, I, th I think I, maybe I mentioned this on Sunday, but um, I've been watching little snippets of the, the defamation lawsuit between Johnny Depp and his ex-wife, Amber Heard. And um, I, I don't watch much of it because, well, it's, it's an unfortunate situation. Um, but one of the things that was interesting is I watched Johnny Depp give testimony of wanting to get off drugs. Which I was like, well, I, I think that might be worth a few minutes of my time. I wanted to hear about this. He was addicted to opiates. And he decided, and it's actually his sister came to him concerned and, and said you're, you're gonna die 
if you keep doing this. And she said, if I put you in touch with a doctor who can help you, will you get help? And he said, yes. And so um, he owns his own island, which, which is, you know, doesn't everybody? <laughs> um, He's a pirate. He's a, he is a pirate, this is fair. But he owns his own island, and what he decided was to begin his detox, and I won't tell the whole story because there's a lot of bad stuff that happened, but to begin his detox, he was going to go stay on the island. And a nurse who, who the doctor assigned to work with him went with him to the island to administer uh, uh, various medications that would help him detox from his opiate addiction. When I read, make no, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust, that's kind of the picture I get in my head, right? So you need to get away from, from, from a drug addiction. So you go someplace where you can't get the drugs. You go someplace where there's no temptation to get the drugs because the drugs aren't there. You go someplace with the people who can help you get away from the drugs, right? Make no provision for the flesh. Now, I'm not saying we have to, to be on an island in order to avoid sin. If I was all alone on an island, I could still find ways to sin. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, this example is, we got to get away from it. Right? If sin's alcohol, don't go hang out in a bar. <laughs> you know, that makes sense, right? And, and we could go on and, and create a bunch of different examples that would fall in line with that. But make no provision. Don't, don't, don't give it a chance. Of course, like I said, we can't do this apart from the power of Holy Spirit and without the instruction and guidance of the Word of God. But it can be done. Chapter 2. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, or Bochim, or Bochim, or however you want to say it, and said, you know, if I didn't do that, you guys would have no idea if I was pronouncing it incorrectly. <laughs> I, and, and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said I will not drive them out before you. But they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So this, of course, was most likely Jesus. Uh, the word angel here simply means messenger. Um, but if you notice, when the angel of the Lord starts speaking, what does he say? I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you into the land. I promised to deliver it to you. You have not obeyed my voice. Um, an angel would not be so bold to say that. God would. And so Jesus, being God, uh, it's most likely him. Tells them, you've been disobedient in regards to the people of the land. And because of that, I'm not going to drive them out. Instead, I'm going to leave them here. 
You wanted their gods here? I'm going to leave them here. They're going to be a snare to you. You didn't want to be obedient in regards to these people? I'm going to leave them here. They're going to be a thorn in your side. What happens? The people weep. <gasps> oh, I was so wrong. They make sacrifices and then they go home. Because of their disobedience, there would be consequences. Notice they have an emotional experience. But what we don't see is any real repentance or change. We are told to show the fruit of repentance in Luke 3.8. And the fruit of repentance is changed by the power and grace of God. Real change comes, of course, from giving our lives wholly to Jesus Christ. Salvation, forgiveness, filled with the Holy Spirit, new life, new purpose. But they had this emotional experience. Now, I don't want to say that there's something wrong with an emotional experience. I've had many mo emotional experiences with the Lord. I'm thankful for them. Some of them have been amazing experiences. I've been at times where I was overjoyed in the presence of God. I've been times where I was weeping, whether it was because I'd done something bad and was repenting and he was forgiving me again, or because it was just such a great moment that it, 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 I became overcome with emotion. But if an emotional experience doesn't lead to true change, doesn't lead to a difference in our lives, then that emotional experience doesn't mean anything. And what we're going to find, they had an emotional experience, but as we continue on in the book of Judges, nothing changed. They didn't do what they were commanded to do. I often tell the kids at camp, whenever I'm a speaker, um, and this is a Pastor Chuckism, but I love it. It doesn't matter how high you jump. It matters how straight you walk when you land. And I've always liked that, right? There's, no, there's nothing wrong with jumping high. There's nothing wrong with the emotional experience, but does it change your life? Do you walk differently as a result? Verse 7 through 10, we get a, a kind of a rehashing of Joshua's death. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the borders of his inheritance at Timnath-Harris, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. And all that generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So, while Joshua was alive, they served the Lord. While the elders who served alongside Joshua were alive, they served the Lord. When they were all dead, they stopped serving the Lord. When the next generation rose up, they didn't even know the Lord. This is a failure on the part of the people, right? We have memorial stones, reminders over and over and over again. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is telling the people, tell your children. Tell your children what God has done for you. Tell them, tell them, tell them. Now, don't get me wrong. We all have children. Okay, most of us have children. And sometimes, children don't listen. But it's not our fault if we don't tell them. Wait a second. It is our fault if we don't tell them. If we tell them and they don't listen, well, 
that's a different story. Then we're there to help pick up the pieces because that's what parents do. It's what God does for us. That's what we do for them. But if we don't tell them, then that's on us. And that's what happened here. Verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Boy, that, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Joshua died, the elders died. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. How long did that take? They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal. Or I, that's actually how you pronounce that is Baal, but we always say Baal. Um, and the Ashtoreths. The Ashtoreths were a fertility goddess. It was a pole that was set up. They would have orgies around it. Not quite as bad as Molech, where they sacrificed babies, but still pretty bad. Uh, Baal, or Baal, was, uh, I mean, it literally means Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, and is another name for Satan. So very, I mean, all of these false gods were demonically influenced. And boy, it just didn't take long, did it? And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. So the people forsake God. They worship false gods. The hand of the Lord comes out against them. The anger of the Lord is aroused against them. And the people were distressed. Oh, poor babies. You're worshiping false gods with horrid and abominable practices. And this makes God angry. God told you not to do it. God warned you against doing it. God told you all the good that would come upon you if you were obedient. God told you all the consequences that would come upon you if you were disobedient. You decide to forsake him, to be fully disobedient to him. And notice the progression. Partial disobedience in the last chapter led to full disobedience here. We talked about that in James. Right? We are drawn away or enticed by our desires. And desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings death. So partial obedience, kind of obeying the Lord, kind of not. Now full on forsaking of the Lord to worship these false gods. God told his people in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And, and, and there are so many ways that that can be applied. But basically what it says is we abandon the one true God and chase after something that doesn't work. That's exactly what they did. Verse 16, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. 
And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. I know I've said this before, but I honestly can't tell you the number of times I've had people come to me groaning, complaining, and distressed because of the things going on in their lives. And when you start asking them the question, you've been reading your Bible? You've been praying? You've been going to church? You've been serving the Lord? Is there something in your life you need to repent of that you haven't gotten rid of yet? Is there some disobedience that you're walking in when you should be walking in obedience to the Lord? And you start digging and you find those things are there? Yeah, but, but why would God allow this to happen to me? Why would God treat me? God's not doing this to you. We do it to ourselves for the exact same reason. We won't cease from our own doings nor from our stubborn way. I mean, I guess I say our. I'm assuming it applies to you. I know it applies to me. Verse 20. Then the anger of the Lord was hot because Israel, or hot against Israel, sorry. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept, as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So God says, fine, I'm going to raise up judges. And they wouldn't listen to the judges, but God would be with the judge. Things would go well for a little while. And as soon as that judge died, they went right back to it. There's a video on the internet, and I know we, I think we've talked about this video before, but of a sheep that goes headfirst into a crevice. And the shepherd grabs the sheep's back feet and yanks and yanks and yanks and finally pulls the sheep out. And the sheep shakes itself off, hop, 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 headfirst, right back into the crevice. If you, uh, you know, probably, I don't know how far sheep hop, but 10 yards down the way. Right? God pulls us out and we just jump right back in. So God said, fine. That's what you want. God is a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on us. And he says, if that's what you want, I'll leave these people here and we'll see if you obey me or not. And of course, we already know how that turned out. And, and anybody listening who's never read the book of Judges, it doesn't turn out well. Verse 22, I'm going to test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. And I just want to remind all of us that God will not tempt us to sin. James 1 tells us that. God will not tempt us to sin. He will allow things 
that will test our faithfulness and obedience to him, but he will not tempt us to sin. So that's important for us to remember. Next week, we will get into the cycle of the judges. Israel will disobey God. They'll be handed over to some sort of enemy. They will cry out to God. God will raise up a judge to deliver them. And once that judge dies, they go right back to their sin. And unfortunately, I mentioned this last week. I'm going to mention it again. I might mention it for the next year or so while we go through these sections of Scripture. That is the cycle of the history of Israel. And before we get too judgmental, it's our cycle too. We do something wrong. We're disobedient. We say the wrong thing. We mistreat somebody or, or whatever whatever it might be, right? We repent. God forgives us because he's gracious and promises to forgive us when we repent. And then the next time it comes up, we do it again. I'm so thankful that we have a gracious and forgiving God. I am thankful that our God understands that we are dust and therefore prone to following winds, even if they blow the wrong way. This does not alleviate the fact that he calls us to be obedient, that he calls us to follow him. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly, but hopefully we're all growing in that. So until next week, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gracious love and forgiveness to each of us. We each need it, and none of us deserve it. Thank you that you gave your son Jesus so that we will never face the condemnation that is rightfully ours for our sin. But instead, we can stand in your grace, clothed in his righteousness. It is a beautiful gift, and, and I am so grateful for it. I pray, Father, that you would help us learn from the pages of the book of Judges. Help us learn from their mistakes so hopefully we don't make the same ones. I pray you'd be with us throughout the rest of our week. Fill us with the power of your spirit. Guide us. Give us your grace and your wisdom. And may you be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.